This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Today, a vigil was held for the London Bridge terror attack victims. And the incident is also becoming a political football as Britain heads into its December 12th election. And it's a warning for all of us in the free world as we head into the Christmas season. The 28-year-old attacker who killed two people launched the attack when he was at an event for X. Cons. He had been released from jail early after serving less than half of his sentence for terrorism. And that, even though the judge noted that he would likely be a danger even after serving a full sentence. And it also appears that he had gone through some type of de-radicalization process. So what are we to make of this? Let me give the numbers out. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. And now I'm joined by Phil Gursky, who is the president and CEO of Borealis Threat and Rick Consultants, Risk Consultants, excuse me, and Mubin Sheikh, a former undercover operative with CSIS and the RCMP. Welcome. Thank you for being with us. Hi, Libby. Hello. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, let us start with Phil. Um, Phil, first of all, it's interesting to me, there seems to be a lot of finger pointing. The parole service said they had nothing to do with releasing these guys, this guy, and it was automatic. But I don't know the automatic release after less than half a sentence. Uh, I mean, what went wrong here as far as you could see? Well, you're absolutely right, Libby. There's always finger pointing after things like this happen. And I'm not really up on, on the UK justice system. You know, obviously we have programs here in Canada in which prisoners can be released, uh, not having fulfilled their complete sentences. But I think the bigger question here is whether or not people convicted terrorist offenses, whether it's plots that they were planning and foiled or plots that they were successful in doing, should in fact be released early. And I think there'd be a lot of people asking that very question. And as you noted in your instruction, Libby, here's a guy that the judge felt 100% was going to reoffend, i.e. commit another terrorist attack or plan another terrorist attack, even if he had fulfilled his his full sentence, which begs the question, why he was released early? What was the mechanism? What was the assessment tool? What was behind the decision-making as to why this guy should be walking the streets of London free? And as a result, two people are dead. And, I mean, this is what really doesn't make sense to me. So he was released with an ankle bracelet. But what's that going to tell you? He was going to a conference for ex-convicts, you know, do you know what I'm saying? That would not necessarily raise a red flag for people monitoring that bracelet. Mubeen? Yeah, I mean, you know, the first part is, of course, the fact that he was only, you know, he only served half his sentence. Uh, the problem was that the UK government changed their laws shortly after he had pled guilty and was convicted accordingly. He was given 16 years. Uh, but then was released, you know, halfway through his sentence. So that's, of course, problem number one. 
Uh, problem number two is, uh, as you noted, I mean, he, he had these restrictions on him. And I don't know in whose infinite wisdom they decided, let's, you know, let's uh, take off that restriction just for him to attend uh, this, uh, this conference. And it just shows, I mean, it's the worst case scenario you could think of. Uh, a guy who, you know, they're kind of rushing in to say, oh, yeah, he's de-radicalized. Uh, without really understanding, you know, the limits to de-radicalization. And both Phil and I, of course, are hyper-skeptical on that and agree. Uh, for him to then attack and kill two of the people that were involved in helping him through those years just shows you the kind of mentality that we're dealing with with these kinds of prisoners. Yeah, it seems to me what I read into what the opposition leader, Jeremy Corbyn, said was that you need... Uh more de-radicalization. Uh, are people here, Phil, putting too much stock into that? We hear the prime minister talking about it, other people, oh yeah, let's just de-radicalize them. Well, you know, as Mubin said, he and I have been talking about this for years now, and we're both on the same page, Libby. I don't know what de-radicalization even means, let alone how you do it. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't people that truly eject or, or reject the ideology that got them there in the first place. But the biggest problem with this is, how do you know? Like, you know, we're not living in a Harry Potter world where you can retrieve thoughts with a wand and put them in a pensieve and view them. We, we simply don't know for certain if somebody has truly recanted or retracted their views. And the other problem here in Canada is we've got, you know, we've had a bazillion dollars thrown at this program in the last couple of years. There's no good effectiveness measurement systems. I'm not sure who's offering these things. I don't want to... to reject that these people are, you know, they're sincere in, in trying to do this, but I think we're really in a Wild West territory when it comes to what these things work. And, you know, the fact that this guy did this at a so-called, you know, rehabilitation or de-radicalization session is really going to call into question all the programs. And the UK has been doing this for a lot longer than we have here in Canada, Libby, and clearly it didn't work on this occasion which is going to mean people are going to say, hmm, does it ever really work? Well, yeah, uh, that's certainly a question I have. And the next question is, you know, we have seen a lot of terror attacks around Christmas time, and I would think that's prime time. Well, you're right. Yeah. And, you know, sorry, sorry, moving back to an election. And I, 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 as I point out to people, you know, in 2004, there was a, the terrorist attack during the Spanish election campaign. Madrid attacks killed almost 200 people and wounded 1,600. And the government failed to recognize it for what it was. They called it a, a, a Basque separatist attack, which, of course, it was not. The government lost. So the, Boris Johnson and his, and his cohorts must be really nervous right now that something's going to happen between now and December the 12th when the Brits go to the polls because uh, the British populace will not look favorably on a government that allows two terrorist attacks to happen in, in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, the question is the alternative might bring more terrorist attacks. Uh, Mubin, what about the Christmas factor, which uh, I don't know, Islamic extreme- extremists might call a crusader holiday or something like that? Yeah, of course, cr- uh, Christmas is a, a, a favored time of attack. Uh, obviously, there are so many soft targets around. Many people are out with their children. Uh, I am, of course, um, expecting uh, such an attack, of course, with the death of Baghdadi, or his suicide anyway. Uh, with his death, the, you know, the, the attempts by ISIS members to show that they're still in the fight. Mm. You know, this recent attack on London Bridge and ISIS taking credit for it, of course. Uh, they are definitely plotting and planning such attacks right now. Uh, don't be surprised if we do wake up, um, you know, on Christmas Day. 
uh, with news of an attack. And of course, New Year's Eve is uh, shortly thereafter, of course. Mm-hmm. So all security protocols will be in place in as much as it's possible uh, to prevent, you know, that one guy from getting through. Uh, and again, I just want to re- reiterate what Bill was saying about the de-radicalization component. I myself used to be quite the proponent of it. Uh, but then I started to see, you know, the kind of people that are doing it. I really wasn't impressed or convinced of their qualifications. Uh, in I think in this case in London, and, and if I can say it this way, you have some academic types who are, you know, who are trying to show that, you know, their understanding is the correct one. And they're rushing and they're haphazardly claiming that people are de-radicalized when they're not. And look, it's, it's, listen, I myself had a per, a personal example. I was a supporter of the extremist cause once upon a time, but understand that my de-radicalization was a natural organic process. We're talking about people who are in custodial settings, uh, where basically de-radicalization is either being forced onto them or they themselves see it as a way to say, Hey, let me just say what they want me to say check off all the boxes, claim I'm de-radicalized, and try to get me out sooner uh, than my sentence calls for. So this this is the problem, and this is what we need to look at. One of the things that's also interesting about this is that it happened just as Britain had lowered its official threat level. Do you see that as a problem, Phil? Um, Yes and no, Libby. I mean, we have an official threat level here in Canada. It's a five-level system. We're currently at medium. We've been there for as long as I can remember. And that level didn't even move after the two attacks within two days in 2014 that you'll remember. I'm not sure what the purpose of a threat level is, to be perfectly honest. You know, whoever did CSIS, it didn't really matter. You just did your job anyway. Unless you've got really good intelligence that something is on the cusp of happening, maybe by raising the level at that point, you, you get a citizenry that's a little more engaged, a little more aware and sort of up on what's happening. But beyond that, I mean, again, we go back to the, you know, the, the risk assessment system that said this guy could be released in the first place. What's the risk assessment system that sets the levels? How do you determine that? I just, I wonder if it's really a useful tool at all beyond if you raise it, you scare the bejesus out of people because it's raised. Now, why is it raised? Can I go, can I send my kids to school? Can I go to work today? Can I take the bus? So I'm not sure, Libby, if it actually serves a purpose. I don't know if Mubin shares my view, but I, I just see it as another thing that governments do to sometimes be seen to be doing something. Mubin? Yeah, I mean, I think it is, it's for public consumption, right? It's to show that we have a, a plan in place. Uh, we are similarly concerned, and here's our respective, you know, whether it's a color coding scheme or uh, certain words that we use, right? So right now, I think the, the British one was actually just downgraded, right, to, um, uh, to uh, I can't remember the exact one, but that an attack was likely. Uh, I think it was just two weeks ago or a few weeks ago that it was lowered. I think it's now substantial. That's that's what it is, that an attack is likely. Uh, and and sure enough, an attack happened, right? So uh, I think it's just a way to kind of assuage the public that, yes, in fact, we're looking at it. Okay, let's take a call from Brian in Mimico. Hello, Brian. Hi, Libby. You know, I'm glad to see for once... People are doing what I've advocated for a long time instead of running away from the terrorists, turning around and attacking them or picking something up and throwing it at them so they can't be shooting at you. They're too busy ducking. 
and it worked out well that way. And I think, you know, people should start thinking that way instead of just automatically running away, even though I know that's just human nature to do that. But you got to remember, if you're attacking them as well as they attacking you, then at least they can't kill as many people or do as much damage and, you know, in a cafeteria food court, fling a tray at them or something at their head. They're busy ducking, and in this case, they got attacked, and they stopped until the police got there. Well, uh, the thanks for your call. The bravery of those bystanders who basically uh, took him down was cited by by everyone, but I guess it's, you can't really, I mean, they risked their lives, Phil. Well, well they, they did, because... They did because, I mean, you know, the, the guy had a fake suicide belt on, and I don't know about you, Libby, or, or Mubin, you don't know how you're going to react in a situation until you're in it. I, I think it's quite remarkable they did what they did, and it's great. I mean, you know, they usually say, you know, run, hide, fight, are your three options when, you, when you're faced with a terrorist. But it takes a special kind of person to approach someone if, in fact, they know or they suspect there may be a suicide belt on. So my, I tip my hat to them, but I'm not sure everyone can do that. And, again, I don't know what I would do in that situation. And, hell, I've encountered terrorism for 15 years. And I can't tell you what you know what, what my reaction should be. So yeah, it's great, but I don't think we can expect every citizen to do that. Well, exactly, uh, Mubin. Do you have a view on that? Of course, you know the police are going to tell the public, you know, you know, run and hide, and as a last resort fight, you know, they can't really be giving public uh, instructions uh, or, or instructions to the public that yeah, you know, you should engage uh, an active terrorist situation. But uh, like Phil said, wow, I mean, these people really are heroes. They must have seen what they thought were wires and an explosive vest. And I can only imagine what was going through their head, probably thinking last moments of their family members. If this guy blows up, I'm dead. But really what a great sight it was uh, to see, you know, a narwhal tusk. I never thought oh a my, yeah, tusk that... would be added to the counterterrorism toolbox, but fire extinguishers as well, right? And these are actually effective tools against especially a knife-wielding attacker. So maybe that's a lesson for the public to keep in mind going forward. Yeah, what did they do with the with the fire extinguisher? Did they throw it or uh, did they squirt it? Oh no, they they they, they were spraying him with the yeah. with the uh, fire extinguisher. In the scene afterwards, you can see at least one of them just uh, just sitting there upright, uh, obviously emptied out. I mean, uh, me personally, I probably would have beat him to death with it, but that's just me. <laughs> hey, Lizzie, we should find out if the narwhal was Canadian. Um, that may be a Canadian, Canadian connection. Uh, yeah, exactly. The other question that I have, there's a big discussion on now about repatriating families of ISIS fighters. Do you think that this incident or these cluster of incidents will inform that discussion, Phil? I hope so. And Mubin and I are on the same page on that. Muda and I are on the same page on a lot of things. You know, we've been saying uh, we should not, we should not, in fact, repatriate ISIS terrorists because we don't know a lot about them. It's going to be hard to try them here in Canada. You know, they all claim to be innocent. And I, did, I just, uh, we used to hear this phrase, of, I, just, I just drove the bus, well, just my tea. That was what all the terrorists would tell us. Um, and we don't know that. And it, it certainly poses a threat to pain with safety. Not that all of them will come back and commit acts of terror. And, and what about the argument, uh, especially about children? Correct. Oh, children, children, I don't rely on children, Libby. We should take the children back. But I also advocate they should be taken away from their parents and put with other members or put in state care. Because anybody that joined ISIS willingly in 2013, 2014, 
is not a fit parent. So that's my view on that. But I think, I think in terms of returnees, it, this will enter into the conversation right now. And I'm not real happy with some of the views here in this country where we can bring them back and it, it'll be okay. We can radicalize them or coach them or mentor them or whatever. Uh, we probably can't. And, and Mubin, do you, do you agree, Mubin? Yeah, I mean, look, the reality is, is that, uh, we, we are having problems in, in terms of actually bringing charges against them, right? That's the main thing. Now, you know, it's, it, the discussion is up in the air. Of course, I, I have also shared Phil's view that we need to resist repatriation as much as possible. But I think we're facing a new problem, and that is Turkey. Turkey is basically saying we're going to forcibly deport all these people. They've already sent back about a dozen Brits uh, to their country. They, in fact, they sent one guy, ISIS member, put him on the plane, and the, the U.K. police found out about it while the plane was in the air en route to London. Uh, they've already sent back people to Denmark, Germany. So I fear that if they do the same thing with Canadians, and because Turkey is a legitimate state, they literally can put these people on a bus and ship them over to the Canadian embassy. And then the question is, would we be forced to take them back? Uh, so while we, we should resist repatriation, we may be faced with a situation of forcible deportation by Turkey, effectively forcing our hand and having, you know, having us take them back. Do you, uh, both of you, do you feel the same way about, say, brides of ISIS as with actual ISIS fighters? Yeah, I'm just quickly... Sorry, Phil, go ahead. Yeah, the term is brides of ISIS have been used a lot. I'm not sure what that means, you know, where they really there just to make babies and change, you know, change diapers. The fact remains is that most of these women, the vast majority, went of their own accord willingly to join Islamic State. Their role there is hard to determine. Movement referred to this, so you have the evidence that they actually beat anybody or torture anybody, that they help rape Yazidi little, little Yazidi girls or not. The point is they're still terrorists. Where whether or not you made tea or you drove the bus or you or you beheaded somebody, you're still a member of a terrorist organization, which is which is contrary to Canadian law and you should be charged as such. Do you have any sense? I mean, the government certainly <clears throat> didn't want to uh, be seen to be doing anything about that before the election. The election is over. They are in a minority position. Is Do you think that uh, makes it more likely that they will not move to repatriate? Well, you, you, again, you mentioned, Libby, you know, during the campaign, this was a no-brainer, right? Nobody yeah. wants these people back. So, I, I, again, there's no urgency because there's no requirement under the law. As Mubin said, Turkey is punting these people left, right, and center. There's, I think 20 in the past three weeks have been sent back to Europe. So, as he says... We may find them on our doorstep. We can't. We can't refuse them entry under the charter. We don't. Have to, we don't have to bring them back, but we can't refuse them entry. So I think Mubin's right. We're going to be faced with this at some point, and what we do is anyone's guess. I, I, we should charge them, but why? Why charge them if the charges aren't going to stick and you don't get a conviction? This is a tough one, Libby. It really is. Okay, um, we're basically out of time. Thank you so much to Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consultants, and Mubin Sheikh, a former undercover operative with CSIS and the RCMP. Uh, very much appreciate your time. Always a pleasure, Libby. Bye, Mubin. Thanks, Libby. Okay. Here's okay. And uh, that is all the time we have for Fight Back for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one.
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.